Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I need to let you know that today's episode has been sponsored by Connor Huss, who's a young musician and conductor based here in the UK. Connor is the fourth person to subscribe to my Patreon page at the conductor level, and his subscription means that he could choose an episode to sponsor. And given that, until recently, Connor studied at the same school as today's guest, and he cites him as an inspiration, this episode is the perfect choice for him to sponsor. There'll be more about my Patreon page and how to subscribe later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who I've known for most of his life. He was the youngest conductor to become the assistant conductor at the Halle Orchestra and has since gone on to have a very successful career guest conducting across the UK and Europe. It's a great pleasure to welcome Jamie Phillips. Jamie, how are you? It's been quite a while. Uh, I've not seen you for many, many years. How are you? I'm very well. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Mike. Really, really good to be here. Good. Uh, dear listener, um, I've known many conductors for quite a while, for quite a few years. I've known some since they were teenagers. I think I remember seeing Jamie when he was probably barely in short trousers as a toddler, because I know his mum and dad as well. Um, and so, you know, when I go back, as I always do, and Jamie knows this because he's listened to a few episodes to say, how, what was the earliest musical experiences? I think I know what the answer is going to be. But Jamie, what were your earliest musical experiences? Well, there's definitely going to be a substantial difference between the earliest musical experience that I can remember and yeah. actually what was the first music I was exposed to. So, yeah. I mean, the, the earliest thing I can remember is sitting at the back of the stalls of Symphony Hall in Birmingham, listening to the CBSO rehearse. Um, yeah. And for those of you who don't know, my uh, dad has been in the CBSO since I think about 1988 at a mm. rough stab in the dark. Um, so and I was born in 91. So I think from probably the age of about two, they, or maybe three, they allowed me to go and sit in the back of Symphony Hall listening to rehearsals. Mm. And I remember the golden rule was, you're not allowed to talk. That's the only rule. You're allowed to whisper. You can whisper to the person next to you, but you're not allowed to say anything out loud. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, that must have been in the uh, in the rattle days um, back when I was first listening to the orchestra. Um, I'm sure I must have heard the orchestra somehow earlier than that but that's definitely the uh, my earliest actual memory of sitting in the back of symphony hall well my my wife um i distinctly remember my wife before we were married um before we had our own children i think she came to Aldborough one time um when we went there to do the Aldborough festival and i remember her saying to me oh that little boy sat there so it so attentively watching the rehearsal. Uh, I'm sure it was you she was talking about. Oh, uh, heck, no, no, yeah. no, must have got the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you obviously stuck to the rules. And, and just to fill in again uh, for the listeners, so your your father Mark um, uh, is the CBSO's third horn player um, and has been for uh, as you said since the late '80s. And your mum Jenny used to play when I first started playing with the orchestra in 91, which is around the time you were born. She was, she was a regular extra player um, in the oboe section and is now the head of Woodwind at the uh, Royal Birmingham Conservatoire. And right, so, yeah. yeah, so music uh, all the time was, was going on in your life. Was I, because I know I knew you on, um, uh, you know, for many years as a trumpet player, was the trumpet your first choice? Um, uh, uh, <laughs> did you study piano at all or do any of that stuff? Um, so, I mean, the first instrument I played properly was the cornet. Um, right. I was totally obsessed 
by my dad's French horn when I was growing up. And there's some hilarious pictures of me sort of sitting behind, I think behind a Wagner tuba sitting on the sofa where it's about <laughs> three times, and I'm three times bigger than me. I'm sort of peering through the, the gaps between the slides and it's very, very funny. Um, and I think, I think Father Christmas bought me a cornet when I was four. Yeah. Um, so that probably because I wasn't actually going to be able to reach the valves of an actual trumpet. I think that was the general idea. Yeah. Um, and then I think I probably graduated to a full size trumpet when I was about six. Um, yeah. I didn't really, I never learned the piano properly. I always sort of bashed away on it and tried to make some sort of a coherent sound on it. But I never actually, uh, I never studied it properly. So trumpet has been my thing um, since then. Mm. And you would have quite quickly been, I don't know what the word is, assimilated into the, and I will call it, into the great Birmingham Music Service, because, you know, many counties and cities around the UK and probably across the rest of Europe and the world, their music services and their teaching has, has been dwindled away and been cut, you know, death by a thousand cuts, whereas Birmingham is still pretty much going today as it was when you were a, a child. Uh, so, you know, uh, did you join training wind band or something? Or what I was the did. first group? A I did absolutely everything. And actually, this is a bit of a coincidence, but I drove past the school somewhere near Quinton um, in Birmingham the other day, where I'm sure I did area wind band or something yeah. when I was about when I was about six or seven um, and I could actually remember the tune that I played there on the first rehearsal I started playing it on my leg <laughs> pretending <laughs> I was actually playing the valves of the trumpet and I honestly it was such a blast from the past driving past there the other day yeah. um, so I did that I did uh, the concert band and ended up in the uh, I think I went through all the different bands and then through to the to the symphony orchestra simultaneously actually working my way through the different jazz ensembles as well so the training jazz ensemble um, and then Birmingham schools jazz orchestra I guess it must be called um, and I had some amazing times in those in those groups went off on lots of tours to the Netherlands and all sorts of places mm. um, and actually just to be exposed to that sheer quantity of music making for free yeah. um, mm. is such an unbelievable thing that Birmingham has to offer as a music service it, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I know how lucky I was to have that yeah I mean that that is the point is that all of those ensembles whether you start you know my eldest daughter Emily started in training um, training wind band or uh, you know the area wind band or whatever it was and went into percussion the into percussion various percussion groups and and, and probably was a member of I would uh, probably eight different groups over the time she was she was in Birmingham schools music service and they were all free that was the point you know mm. she she ended up like you coming to the pinnacle of the service and I think that's both how they view it and how I viewed it which is the school symphony orchestra you know uh, and every all of the way through the journey the lessons weren't free but all of those ensembles were free and you got ensemble training from the earliest age you could and I, I think that's so important yeah absolutely I mean that exposure and also the variety of repertoire that we were covering certainly in the uh, in the symphony orchestra was really second to none I mean doing things that we just, just wouldn't dream of doing in your forgive me if this is clunky words, but your regular local youth orchestra. I mean, yeah. this is, it, it, we were talking really, really serious stuff. Mm. Um, and then to go and do all the jazz stuff as well, to have those sort of two things running in parallel. I, I really, uh, retrospectively, I mean, at the time I knew how much I was enjoying it, but looking back on it, just to see what a huge privilege that was. And it's just not consistently like that across the country. Um, so no. I consider myself very, very lucky, actually. Now, I first encountered you as a musician. Uh, I may well have bumped into you as a little child at some point, but I first encountered you as a musician when I first started conducting Birmingham School Symphony Orchestra, uh, where, and you were in the trumpet section. Now, 
I seem to always remember thinking or knowing that you were interested in conducting from that point when I first met you as a as a teenager sitting on principal trumpet. But had that been a thought before I met you then, you know, I, with the previous conductor, Peter Bridal, or just earlier on in your life, when did conducting manifest itself as something you'd become interested in? It's a really, really difficult thing to kind of pinpoint whether there was yeah. like an actual moment that I realised it was something I wanted to do. But for sure, I guess by the time I was in sixth form, which is probably about the time that we first met, some mm. of those last couple of years of my school days, so I was probably about 16 or 17, um, is where I started to think that this is actually something that I might like to take seriously. Um, and also with the greatest of love to all of my trumpet playing colleagues, there's not always that much to do when you're sitting in the brass section of the orchestra. There's a lot of bars rest. Mm. Um, and I guess spending quite a lot of time, certainly through my teens, sitting at the back of the orchestra, um, observing kind of what was going on at the front. And I think those people who know me very well would probably call me a control freak. And I will, I will, <laughs> I will accept that graciously, but actually, mm to have the feeling that I wanted to be a little bit more involved in the process and everything that was going on. Um, I certainly kind of saw everything that was happening at the front. I thought, yeah, maybe I'd like to have a go at this. And I probably, yeah, probably about the similar sort of time, actually, I asked my school and my school head of music, whether I could have a go at conducting um, the school symphony orchestra. And we got Beethoven six out of the library and we read through it on sort of Monday evenings after school. Um, and I was absolutely terrible. I was absolutely shocking. But what I knew was that there was something in that that I wanted to explore and then take things a little bit further. Mm. Um, and things gradually just developed through those couple of years, um, probably in sixth form. I then conducted the school orchestra a couple more times. Um, I think I then probably, it was about that time I approached you and we had sort of had a couple of chats about, about whether this is something that I could make work. Um, and everything seemed to sort of point in the right direction for it not to be a totally crazy idea. Mm. Yeah, I remember I've got a feeling when you even came round and one afternoon we sat in my dining room and looked at the school for Beethoven 6, I, even that very first time. I think I you think probably so. did. Um, yeah. I mean, it sort of leads on to further and higher education, as it used to be called, um, <laughs> which, you know, you went to Manchester, now, remind me, did. did you go to the, the Royal Northern College of Music or did you go to Manchester University or did you do the combined between the two? Uh, I can't it's, remember. The, it's the elusive third option, Mike. Yes, so yeah. I, I was very, very fortunate to do something called the Joint Course in Manchester, yeah. um, which generally takes only about half a dozen students a year, um, not least because it's actually very expensive to put on because basically you do two degrees at once. Um, so I was a trumpet student at the Royal Northern College of Music and I studied academic music and everything that is normally done in a music degree uh, at the University of Manchester. You mm. effectively do do two degrees at the same time, uh, but at the Northern you don't do any of the academics. So it kind of works out somewhere in the region of about one and a half simultaneous mm. courses. And it was really amazing. I think as a brass player, it was uh, it was a real gift just because the amount of practice that you do as a brass player is Oh gosh, I'm about to confess here. <laughs> in the region of, shall we say, one to two hours a day on a good day, whereas yeah. a string player or a keyboard player is looking at sort of four or five hours a day, and there simply wasn't time um, for those uh, for those guys to actually put in the hours. So a lot of them suffered from probably I call it burnout, really, because they they had so many pressures on their time. Mm. For me, it was absolutely perfect because I could just go between the two institutions, which which are about a five minute walk from each other. 
Um, and you had the best of both worlds. It was amazing. Yeah. I had friends in both. I had experiences in both. Two very, very different ways of studying, two very different psychologies towards music making. Um, and that was great, actually. I really enjoyed being able to, to do that. And actually, sometimes if you were becoming weary of one, one way of working, you'd move to the other and then you, and you can explore that world for a few days. It was great. So during this time, I know for a fact that you were very much becoming more interested in conducting because of the activities of the summer courses of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra's own youth orchestra. That summer academy is is my baby. Uh, I've been involved with the youth orchestra since it started. But that summer course, from its inception, we always had two three-hour sessions where we gave people the chance to either play a concerto movement with the orchestra or, in your case, conduct. And you did Two or three of those, possibly? Um, I think I did, and I was yeah, just yeah. rummaging around in the back of my brain to try and remember what repertoire we did. I definitely remember doing the orchestral version of Appalachian Spring. Yes. That stuck vividly in my mind. And again, just very, very formative experience for me because getting up in front of an orchestra of, I don't know, 40 or 50 players, probably for the first time conducting a group that size, and going, yes, this looks like a marvellous thing to be doing, but this is really hard. Yeah, this is yeah. really hard. None of this is working the same as when I conduct along to a CD. It's just no <laughs> one's cooperating. What's happening? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what yeah. am I doing wrong? <laughs> um, so that must have been about the time I was starting university. And then through my time um, at uni, we, we had some amazing opportunities to conduct. I mean, Manchester University has a brilliant conducting programme not least because of the amount of podium time you get whilst you're there. Mm. Um, and I'm sure this is a theme that's going to come along several times in this conversation. But actually, I honestly, I honestly believe that the most valuable way you can spend your time trying to become a conductor is to spend time relating to musicians. And that doesn't yeah. necessarily need to be in front of an ATP symphony orchestra conducting a, conducting a Mahler symphony, but it can even be something like I don't know, coaching a brass quintet or just talking through something with a string quartet and just exchanging ideas and thinking, how can we get the best out of this situation? And yeah. I don't know whether you'd agree with this. I'm sure you probably would. But about 80 percent of conducting is diplomacy and politics. So if well, you can yeah. if you can if yeah. you can if you can harness your harness your technique and get that all sorted. I, I, I don't know, maybe those proportions are way off, but it's certainly how I feel on a daily well, basis. But yeah, it's. It is. It's diplomacy. It's politics. It's it's you know you being an amateur psychologist basically. Yeah. You know, I remember one of those sessions because, of course, at the same time you and Alpesh were were sort of running along side by side with each other. And I remember one of those sessions in particular. I'd said to both of you, "Right, I'm not going to say anything. You re you rehearse because mm. the first time you stood in front of the orchestra, I." gave you tips and help and all this sort of stuff and some technical advice. But then the second time I said, I want to see you rehearse. I want to see what you say to the musicians, you know, and, and, he, and even, you know, I could, I could stop both of you and say, no, 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 no. That sentence was so close to being perfect, but the use of that word there has just lost half the orchestra, you know, that, and as you said, it's that standing in front of people and learning to do it and realizing that, you know, the hands and arms and what the faces you pull and all that sort of stuff, the technical stuff that you were probably given by, uh, at university or even by Mark and Clark or if you did anything at the Royal Northern that's all very well and good you can be the best conductor in the world but if you say the wrong thing in the wrong way to the wrong people you you've had it you really you can lose well, absolutely, very absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. and standing standing on the podium in front of great professional orchestras these days you 
there's never a moment halfway through the week where you lose an orchestra based on one small thing you did with your pinky on your left hand. No, no, it's, it's, no. it's entirely to do with the words and the phrasing and the, no. the general working atmosphere. No. Um, and it's absolutely right. It, it, to, when you put a young conductor in front of an orchestra, see how they're rehearsed. And actually, when I've occasionally given conducting classes these days, uh, actually, I, I'm more interested to see how people, as I say, relate to the people that are in front of them yeah. and try and cajole the best possible best possible musical result out of them. It's very, very little to do. Well, okay, I can't say it's little to do with technique, but you can learn that. Mm. Um, you need to sort of work on developing yourself as a uh, as a person, as a as a as an an enabler. If that's not too poncy a word to use. No, no, that's no, right. Uh, the, there are two cities in this country where the educational establishments have wonderful links to the professional orchestras. Glasgow, where if you're at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland, you are regularly in contact and, and quite often put in front of the Royal Scottish National Orchestra or the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. And there is a relationship between them. The other place is Manchester, where you know there is a relationship between the Royal Northern College of Music slash Manchester University and the Halle Orchestra, but also with other orchestras in the area. So that, you, know, you go and watch BBC Philharmonic rehearsals and also there's links to the Liverpool, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic. So uh, something is reminding me that you are the youngest person to to become the assistant conductor of the Halley Orchestra. I don't know whether that's true or not true. It's, it's, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you were something like 20 years old. So how do we go it, from being an 18-year-old student who, who'd sort of just started conducting uh, and picking my brains and other people's brains to becoming the assistant conductor of the Halley? How did that all go about, come about? Wow. Okay, so... Uh, well, when I was about 18 and I was still um, in the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain um, as a trumpet player, that's when that's when things really started to kind of the cog started turning in my mind and thinking, is this something that could work? And actually, it was I think it was probably on my last course there. So I must have just turned 18 and um, I decided to get a group of people together just to play through as it seems to be a running theme here, Beethoven 7, right. <laughs> in yeah. one of the evenings on one of the residential courses. Um, and Vasily Petrenko, the great Russian conductor, he was there um, conducting the main orchestra that week for the proms. Um, and he came and watched this sort of run through we did one evening. And if I said it had about a third of the NYO in it, it was still about 60 players because the right. orchestra is so massive. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and we had a great time doing that. And that then sort of gave me a little bit of confidence to go off to university. I had some video footage of that, which was hugely is hugely important when you're trying to yes. sort of find your way in the conducting world. I, I filmed that with a old Sony uh, family video camera mm. um, and then showed that to the chap that then became my uh, conducting teacher uh, in Manchester, Mark Heron, who's yeah. now the head of conducting at the Royal Northern. Um, and basically from there, I just started gradually building experience through my time at university. Um, I then, I don't know whether it was absolute insanity or whether I just drunk too much on one particular night, but I entered the, uh, I entered the conducting competition in Besançon in France. Yes. And I was at that point, I must've been 18 when I applied for it or maybe just 19. And interestingly, the thing that really appealed to me about applying for that competition particularly is that they didn't really require any evidence of like a great history of standing in front of orchestras <laughs> yeah. um, and you to have amazing footage conducting conducting orchestras already um, because their first round of applications re just required you to fill in a form basically right. and yeah. they then invited you to do a piano audition so basically I could rock up I think it was in in the Hans Eisler 
um, conservatoire in Berlin, where I basically rocked up and conducted the Rite of Spring with two pianos. Um, and the fact that I'd sort of managed to steer our way through it meant that mm. I then got um, put into the actual the live finals with orchestra. And it was only because there was sort of that I was able to take that little leap between um, not having any experience at all and being able to then stand in front of an orchestra um, in the competition scenario. And I, I have to be totally honest, I was I was so, so young uh, at 19 that actually I was doing this all really without a clue what, what was happening. It was an absolute whirlwind. Um, I was conducting the, the Brussels Philharmonic. They were the orchestra for certainly the last couple of rounds. Very, very, very good orchestra in Belgium. And I honestly did not have anywhere near the amount of experience uh, to be to be conducting in such a prestigious uh, situation. But I got through the rounds. I got through the first round. My family had all come out to France to, to be there for the first round and all booked their train tickets to go home the next day after the first round. And then we were like, <laughs> oh dear, now what? <laughs> I started sort of trying to think whether I could go and get a slightly nicer shirt for the second round and all yeah. these kind of things. Yeah. Um, and gradually the rounds sort of just went and I kept getting through them. And I, I think I ended up in the semi-finals of that, which was um, an incredible experience. And um, the great British conductor, uh, Andrew Davis, was on the, on the jury. Well, he was the chairman of the jury. Yeah. And I didn't get through to the finals of that competition, which I have to say looking back on it, was probably the greatest gift I could possibly have been given at that age. Yeah. Because if I had gone on to be in the final and then had won for whatever reason, I think my career would have lasted about three and a half minutes. Mm. Um, because mm. the list of engagements that comes with such a prestigious competition, I mean, it's sort of 15 or 20 guaranteed invites and then possibly another 20 with other orchestras. Um, I, I would have fallen flat on my face within, within five minutes. Um, that, in addition to a competition I did in, uh, in Salzburg with the Nestle competition, where I was up against a young lady called Mirga Grazenite Tila. Oh, yes. You've come across her yes, since. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and we were, we were both in the finals together. She went on to win that competition. But those two things, the Besançon and the Salzburg competition together, sort of started to make things kind of move in the right direction, had calls from agents, bits and bobs. But your question was about how I ended up at the Halle, actually, mm. which was uh, very specific. Um, it got to about the end of that, that, that sort of academic year. And I was, my, I was in my third year at university. Um, interestingly, the joint course, which I did, is three years at, U at the university and then four years at the RNCM. So I still had another year in the bank yeah. uh, to do at the college as a trumpet player. And basically, I had an invite asking me to go and uh, audition to apply for the Halle job. Uh, to be Mark Elder's assistant and the orchestra's assistant. And to cut a long story short, I got it. But that's yeah. sort of the timing of how all those little bits and pieces came together. It was, I have to say, just the biggest whirlwind of a year. Mm. It's incredible. Well, I remember the the whirlwindiness, and that's not that's not a word I just <laughs> made up. Um, because I, I do remember watching one of the rounds of the Besançon being live streamed when you were on it. I remember sitting in this very office watching you conducting whichever round it was. Um, and yeah, I mean, something like that, you know, I mean, I'm going to go back to competitions in a minute and, and talk to you about that, but for it to happen so quickly, um, and, and then you, you know, you're, 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 you've got a foothold, you're on the ladder, you know, you're, you're on a, you know, an early, a, a couple of rungs up already. Um, I think you're right about the competition um at that time i think if you'd gone on to win it uh, yeah you, the possibilities of being eaten alive by orchestras would have been great the one thing about besançon though and let's come up on the on the podcast before with a pr another 
Halle, assistant conductor, who won Besançon, was the fact that if you'd have won, you'd have had a year with a mentor to do all to do with agencies and saying yes and saying no, which many competitions don't have. Uh, Jonathan Hayward had that experience. No, uh, I think yeah. interestingly, I think that's come into play since I was in it because I yeah. don't think that that was a factor when I uh, at the time that I um, that I was in the competition. So I think that I think that might have come in since then. I don't mm. know whether that's almost possibly to slightly mitigate the the dangers yeah. and the perils of being catapulted into the uh, into the stardom of winning a big competition like that. It's, it's uh, interesting. I, I think it's absolutely the reason why. And I because I would imagine that they've had and you know I've I've looked back through the winners of various competitions, you know, it, doing my research for this very podcast and thought, well, I've never heard of that person. Where have they gone? Oh and I've never heard of that, you know, and and I'm sure there have been burnouts in the past. Um assistant conductor and now associate with the Halle. And you say so you've had a relationship with them now for how many years would that be? Probably 10 years now. Well, I well, I was the assistant conductor there for three seasons. Um, and then I was there as the associate conductor for just a final season. So I right. um, I left the Halle probably in, I think it was 2016 or 17. Yeah. I've been back as a guest conductor at least once a year since then. And yeah. they are just the most incredible um, group of musicians to work with. Um, I, I Honestly, I mean, I'm, the job as assistant in the Halle, I think, is one of the greatest assistant conductor jobs in the world. And there's several reasons for that, and I'm sure we'll touch on all of them um, over time. But uh, as I said before, the sheer podium time that I got when I was when I was working there, and that's not just conducting all of the education concerts, which I did, which was an immense privilege to do, um, but I did subscription concerts every year, I think starting from about six months in. Um, the trust that they put in 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 the in the position of assistant conductor and whoever's taking up that role at the time is really immense, actually. Mm. Um, and I must I must have done I don't know at a rough guess thirty or forty concerts a year, including all the education work, which was just incredible uh, to be able to cover that volume of repertoire and just find my feet in an environment where where if you make an error or something doesn't go quite according to plan it's not just a question of you not being re-invited to such and such an orchestra that yeah. actually and I mean there was a there was a what would you call it not a panel but a uh, a select group of uh, members from the orchestra and every probably every six months or every year we would have a meet up and we would talk about the things that were working well and the things that weren't and that could be everything from the person at the back can't quite can't quite hear when you're when you're speaking in front of the group yeah. or uh, have you, uh, there's just some things about your technique which we think you might want to work on. And that's the sort of thing that now I'm in the big wide world in the profession, you never ever get to hear. The only feedback you get is whether you get a re-invitation or not. That's yes. that's literally, that's that's as far as it goes. Yeah. Um, so the podium time with the Halle was incredible, but also the time I spent with Sir Mark was just really extraordinary. His care, his dedication to whoever is holding that post I mean, I, I remember times where we were sort of chatting about, well, I mean, we chat about everything, everything from the business to the most ludicrously specific things, details in the music, to the extent that we'd still be sat in his dressing room at the Bridgewater Hall with a rehearsal having finished at five o'clock and we'd still be there at nine o'clock with a knock on the door from the cleaner saying, um, are you going to get out now? <laughs> we were just nattering into the wee yeah. small hours, it felt like. Um, and yet his care and his... I don't know, he, he, he's so committed to nurturing young talent and to making sure that whoever's in that role feels totally immersed in the organisation. 
Um, and there are other assistant conductor jobs all around the world where I think the uh, the person holding that role holds an almost sort of subsidiary role within the organisation. Yes. Yeah. And that is absolutely not the case, as it is with the CBSO, of course, uh, totally dedicated from the orchestra and the management to being part of the organisation. And the same was true in Manchester. Um, mm. And honestly, I could not wish to have had a more kind of immersive, um, fruitful experience. Actually, yeah. It was incredible. I was going to say, actually, that, you know, many orchestras in the UK have assistant conductor jobs. The, the elder factor is one that probably probably takes it above and beyond the others. You know, yes, as you said, the CBSO, the players definitely have an input with the assistant conductor. And like every other job, the conductor and the players will meet on a regular basis. They will meet in coffee queues, on coach journeys to wherever, uh, even in the pub after concerts. But it's different when there's also, a, you know, a, a name like Sir Mark Elder who's putting their arm around you and probably watching you rehearse. And I'm not sure that happens to, to quite to that extent in other orchestras, even the CBSO, you know, that, that um, whilst they, you know, they have a, a direct line to the music director, whether they've got quite that amount of time and and and, and sort of connection is another thing. Um, and, you know, it sounds like most of the people who have gone through that are regularly invited back, you know, Jonathan Hayward, Ed Gardner, they go back to the orchestra, the orchestra formed relationships with them. And it's in their best interest to give you all the best advice because they're going to be working with you for two or three years. Um, so it's absolutely in their best interest, isn't it? Um, yeah, for sure. It, it yeah. was a really incredible experience. And I mustn't forget actually to mention the other huge part of the job, which was having um, sole direct directorship of the Halle Youth Orchestra, yeah, yeah. Um, which was, it, it was an incredible group of young musicians, actually. And actually to have that as my... I might say my baby was really, really special for me. Um, and the, it, it tends to be the case that people uh, who take up the role as the assistant conductor of the Halle generally do two seasons or possibly three. Mm. I think possibly for, well, for a mixture of reasons. Also, the fact that I was so young when I started, I ended up doing four years. And so to see some young members of the youth orchestra go from, I don't know, the age of about 14 through to 18 and sort of graduate from from that and to see them through for those years was actually such a moving experience for me mm. I really really enjoyed that and to have to be able to take those kids under my wing was amazing and actually I, I went back to the Halle as a guest conductor uh, just last month and the young lady Laura Embry who was leading the youth orchestra for my last couple of years was then sat in the second violins of the Halle and that made that choked me up a bit actually yeah, that yeah, made me feel yeah. that was a really good feel-good factor yeah I, I'm nodding away because I've seen Quite a few people do the same from the CBSA Youth Orchestra, go through, I mean, you know, let alone the, you know, the first person who ever conducted uh, in one of my sessions was Ben Jernan, then you and Alpesh. But then there's also, you know, there's Joss Brooks in the, who plays in the cellos, we've had trumpeters, we've had percussionists, we've had, and it is, you look out and think, oh my God, it's working. That, the, the you know, having the reserve team, the youth orchestra underneath, and these people, some of them going up and, and, and going and working in the profession is unbelievable. I'm going to go quickly back to competitions and ask, what were your overall, I mean, I know you said you were young, but what were your overall experiences? 
did you enter any more? And if not, why not? Well, were, were your fingers burnt by competitions or did you just think, do you know what? Actually, the job at the assistant at the Halle is probably much better for my career and maybe I shouldn't be doing competitions. I just wonder whether, you know, whether it was something you thought, I've done that, I've had a couple of goes, you know, uh, I'll move on and try something else. I have to be totally honest. And I was racking my brains when you just asked that question. I don't think I even considered entering anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did. It, it wasn't a conscious decision in any way, actually. I suppose that by the time I'd got that foot on the ladder yeah. um, uh, with the Halle, I also had an agent by that point, which is a huge element of why people enter conducting competitions. Let's face it, to get yeah. noticed. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it looked like I had been noticed. So yeah. I felt like it had done its job. Um, and I don't know. I, I think I did the right number of competitions. Maybe it would have been good to maybe enter one a couple of years later and possibly to go on to win it. But also, I think th there's also an argument for, for mm. orchestras looking at someone who's started working their way up the, the ladder of guest conducting and it possibly looking a little bit strange for them then to be seen to be entering com conducting competitions because people are very especially in the music world, very quick to draw conclusions about things. So yes. if they see you on the, uh, on the, on the roster for a, for a competition, they might go, well, what's gone wrong? Yeah, or, yeah. Well, what, yeah. is, is something actually changed? Um, and I, I, I actually think that one of the reasons I did quite well in those competitions that I did earlier on was the fact that I didn't have time to get nervous about it because I was, mm. it was such on a wing and a prayer, as it were, that I didn't, I didn't have the headspace to actually think, to, to, to get bogged down by the idea that, yeah, the Besançon competition was being streamed on live French television and the Salzburg competition was recorded by ORF, the National Austrian Broadcaster, to go out on a Salzburg festival broadcast two weeks later or whatever. Yeah, didn't yeah. have time to get nervous about that. If two or three years down the line I'd gone into the final 16 in an I don't know, in the Malco competition or the Cadaquez competition or whatever, and hadn't for whatever reason got through, I'd got a bit nervous or whatever, I think that would possibly have done more damage than actually yeah. just enjoying my time on the ladder and beginning to work my way up up it rather than installing any unnecessary grease on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think you probably did the right thing. I just wonder whether it was a conscious or unconscious decision, but I think, yeah, I think you did the right thing. Um, one last relationship, uh, this time in Los Angeles. Um, in 2016, you became a Dudamel Fellow, which means working with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and also with Gustavo Dudamel. How did that differ from, um, you know, sunny Los Angeles to rainy Manchester? Uh, I was about to say sunny Manchester. No, 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 no I was never going to say that. <laughs> Though actually, weirdly, I, I've been to Manchester many times working with the BBC Philharmonic. I don't remember it ever raining when I've been up there, so I don't know. Um, oh, they must have organised it specially for you. They must have done, yeah. Uh, so what were the differences? Was it a big difference, you know, orchestral attitudes or, or what you were expect? what was expected of you, really? You know, what were the differences? A huge difference. I mean, let's start with the practicalities. I mean, being whisked across to the other side of the world on a 12-hour flight, being constantly jet-lagged, doing short trips there was a whirlwind in itself, actually. Yeah. Um, not least to actually get my head around the idea of sort of going somewhere totally, totally different where I felt, let's not forget, I'd been in Manchester as a student and then graduated into the Halle scheme. So that yeah. was a city I'd lived in for a long time. And so to move to Los Angeles for the sort of, I don't know, a month at a time, a few times over the year, um, where I didn't know anybody. I knew mm. absolutely nobody. So my sole human contact, apart from 
people serving in bars and restaurants was the management of the orchestra and the musicians in the orchestra. It's a very, very different psychology in terms of the, the working atmosphere in America. It is very, very different from, I was going to say it's very different from back home, but actually I think the US and the UK are sort of almost siblings in terms of the, uh, the, the, can we call it a sort of no nonsense approach to music making? Yeah, um, yeah. There's definitely a necessity to be um, efficient and not to waste words too much. Uh, not too much philosophy unless it's really called for. Um, whereas actually, probably at that point in my career, I was mostly working on the continent, sort of in Germany, Switzerland, France, these sorts of places. So th that was more of a kind of polar extreme from, from America to continental Europe rather than America to the UK. Um, so when I actually stood in front of the Los Angeles Philharmonic for the first time, I, I actually felt, okay, I was rather nervous about standing in front of such a prestigious orchestra but actually the working atmosphere sort of clicked in terms of what i was used to from a sort of no nonsense british mentality yeah yeah well, i think that's a fair comment you know that yeah you've got more time i was having a discussion just this past weekend where i was working in Wiesbaden with an orchestra i know very well the, the wdr funkhouse orchestra and after the concert quite a few of us you know sat down over a beer and had a chat and um Somebody was saying, oh, you must feel like you have so much time with us. Don't you get bored with all of the rehearsals? No, it's just a different attitude. You know, you've got time to, to really investigate a point or a bowing or a phrasing or a, whereas in the UK and it sounds like in the US, because I've never worked there, you know, you, it, brevity of sentences is, is good. Use of, you know, um, not try not to be overly verbose uh, <laughs> and, and just, you know, get things done. And occasionally try and get things done with a gesture rather than stopping with a sentence. But it, you do often feel uh, time pressure in the in those areas of the world whereas you know in germany and, and, and other places you don't feel that pressure absolutely it's a very very different way of working um yeah. and the, actually one of the things i find hardest in in terms of the way that the, sort of my diary might be structured is to go from a concert probably in the uk somewhere where maybe i've even only got a three-hour rehearsal to put yeah. quite a complicated tricky program together um and then you sort of fly off the next day to somewhere in Germany or Switzerland and you have four days to do a program that you otherwise would have done in one day in the UK yeah. and to try and work out how to how to kind of pace that um, sort of uh, duration of rehearsals without it looking like you as a conductor have burnt out on day on day one or day two um, and that there's still something to say a little bit later in the week mm. uh, having said that without what's that horrible word, filibustering, um, yes. to actually yeah, yeah, look like yeah. you're sort of blagging your way to the end of the week. And actually to try and keep that trajectory of energy and that pacing towards the concert right over a, fair, over a few days. And I don't pretend for one minute to say that I've got this right, but it is a bit of an art if you can manage yeah. it. And, and, we're, and I'm learning. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I'm learning. Well, somebody you, you'll know, probably, um, Graham Littlewood was my desk partner in the CBSO, and we came up with a, a, our own phrase for for that, which we used to call chrono-loading, which was when work expanded to fit the time available. You know, when, when there was 20 minutes left at the end of rehearsal, when some conductors would, could have said, oh, go on, go home early. And sometimes conductors would find work to do in those 20 minutes just to take us to the end of the rehearsal. And we'd sit there going, oh, God, chrono-loading again. You're just finding well, that's things it, that's, that, that's a world I know a lot yeah. about because my wife's a school teacher, so she has to do that because you can't <laughs> yeah. let kids out 20 minutes early. Like, no, right, we can't. need to find you a task. 
<laughs> um, briefly, before we go on to guest conducting and you know what you do and, and I do now, um, I want to go back to Besançon and around that time and the fact that you said you've got an agent, which is you know quite early on. Experience with, with agents and managers, um, it's something that you know it's part of our lives. So how have they been your experiences with agents, managers? Um, of course, when you're starting out at the very, very beginning of your career, you need that guidance and that expertise. Yeah. Well, certainly I did at yeah. a very, very fresh age of probably about 21 by the point that I signed um, yeah. with a, a company called Intermusica, which is a, a very, very respected um, agency in London. Yeah, um, I really valued their time and their wisdom um, to sort of work out how to develop my career gradually. Um, I actually don't think I was ever in my time with Intermusica pressurised into doing any work that I didn't feel was right. Which Often we have frank and honest conversations about, about whether things were the right thing to do. And sometimes you'd have an, have an invite to do some work and you would sit down and think, actually, you know what, this short term looks marvellous, but actually long term is a terrible idea. And yeah, there was that yeah. openness and that frankness um, to be able to have to be able to have those competi uh, competitions, conversations. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. actually, I... Uh, I uh, really valued my time there. I just, actually, I'm not I'm with a different agency now, I'm with a lady called Emma Sweetland, the company Sullivan Sweetland, also in London. Um, I moved between agencies during the pandemic, for several reasons, but actually yeah. I, I sort of thought that as we're coming out of the pandemic, it might be nice just to have a little bit of a change of scene and slightly mm. fresh approach in, a, in an ever-changing musical world yes. um, because things are a-changing. So nice to just have that little bit of extra, uh, well, fresh injection of energy from a new team. I absolutely agree with you. I had the same agent for 10 years and then um, felt that I needed a, a you know, a, a can of Red Bull. Uh, no sponsorship <laughs> intended. Or, you know, it could have even be a bigger can of Relentless, but whatever. I needed some sort of change of scene. I needed a change of voice. I needed a change of opinion. I needed a change of view or uh, outlook on how the business worked and how my place fitted in it. And, and I couldn't be happier. You know, it really works and still works now. And I think, you know, that's... That's something that all conductors, you know, I, I was, is it a seven-year itch? I don't know. Mine was ten years, but I didn't. I needed, yeah. I needed something, some something to change. So, yeah, I think the pandemic was probably a very good time to, you know, to. Ha well, I think we also sat here doing an awful lot of thinking. Um, when you're in Absolutely. the middle of your career, you haven't got time for much of that. You're worried about, you know, is the flight you're on going to land in the airport at the right time for you to get the next flight to go somewhere else to go to the orchestra to conduct it? Blah de blah de blah. You know, you've got time to sit about think about you know uh, agents and managers um which brings us on to guesting of course which is you know something we all have to do and and you and i do probably well that's that's uh, other than the cbso and I, I let's say for you the halle because you know the whilst this there is an association there other than that every other orchestra is a guest a guest visit strategies plans is a repertoire you like to take the first time um you know, uh, have you got any sort of mental games you play as you are walking to the hall on the Monday morning and you're about to meet an orchestra for the very first time and you put that beat down and you don't know what's going to come back or when it's going to come back? Now, how do you deal with it all? It's a very, very good question, Mike. Um, and I'm really hoping that my answer is not too disappointing to you because actually <laughs> I I don't tend to do strategy, if I'm right. totally honest. Um, and it's not to say that I don't plan what I do quite carefully, but I tend to find that the more kind of analysis I do of potential situations that might develop, 
um, the less natural I come across on the on the podium. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I've been conducting for 10 years professionally now, and I'm tending to find, I don't know whether you see would see eye to eye with this, but I, I'm tending to find that the, the, the places I go and just feel most relaxed in general, and I'm not talking about just musically relaxed, but just psychologically relaxed. Mm, mm, um, mm. I tend to just perform so much better. Um, and I tend to be more engaging and more sort of receptive to what's going on in front of me. And, and this bit, I know you will agree with, but if you, if you go in with a sort of checklist of, I must do this, 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 because I'm in this in such and such a place, it invariably goes, and yes, you're shaking your head <laughs> vigorously. Um, it, tends to, it tends to fall flat on its head because you, you, there's no, um, there, there's no interaction there. Um, no. And actually when I've been at my most nervous um, in front of really, really great orchestras, I tend to almost, and you forget to listen. And actually yeah, yeah, at the point yeah. that you, and the point at which you forget to listen to what's happening in front of you, you don't respond to that. You don't, you don't engage with it as a process and you don't actually hear the things that need improving or that you might like to change. Um, and that's a piece of advice I give to any young conductor, either that I meet or might happen to be listening to this, is try to relax to the extent that you are actually able to hear what's happening in front of you. Because mm. orchestras cannot stand conductors who go in with a pre-prepared list no. of things that they wish to achieve. No, it's, it's no, exactly. Cardinal sin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a question I ask people who do a lot of guest conducting um, because it's interesting to hear how everybody's attitudes are. But I, I, I'm generally the same as you: is I'll go in, I start conducting, and I respond to what comes back in my general direction. Um, and then get into the job. And as you're saying, if you're opening and listening, then you'll hear mistakes. You'll hear ensemble that needs fixing, and every orchestra wants to play together. And if you start fixing ensemble problems, and it starts to play together, orchestra will respond and go, "Oh, it's fixing problems." Yeah, I've been in yeah. I've been in orchestras when conductors have come along and not fixed a single problem at all, and you're sitting there going, "Well, fix, what can't you hear that?" You know, um, and yeah, it's just to be spontaneous enough. Uh, and at the end of the day, I always walk out, you know, walk outside and think, right. That I'm now at this point of after so much time of rehearsal, that's good. I'm probably ahead of the game, but tomorrow I must I must do this, this, and this to make it better. Yeah, sure. After day one, then you know, yeah, then then you can come up with more of a strategy. But day one, no, never. Absolutely. Yeah. But come, but coming back to what we were talking about before, Mike, about the differences between the way of working in yeah. in the UK or the US versus countries in Europe that have perhaps slightly more generous rehearsal times. If there's one thing that I do consciously, it's when there is more time, and this is gonna sound awful, but to be almost a little bit more vague with my gesture in the first day or so, not to give too much information with my body language in that right. first day, or maybe even two days, because just because of the different way, the different psychological approach to re the rehearsal process and the fact that there's a much, much longer trajectory between that first rehearsal and the concert. If you overload the musician's peripheral vision with instructions of exactly what you want to happen, it, it just it, the, the whole the whole process kind of burns out within about 20 minutes. So if you do have three or four days, I, I always try to be a little bit more. I don't know, would pithy be the right word with, with, with yeah, gesture? Yeah, yeah, just to yeah. be a little bit more sort of, no, vague isn't the right word, but just to be, uh, to, to, to show the bare basics, but let everyone get their head around it. Because 
as as we all well know, British musicians are so unbelievably good at sight reading um, that it's easy to forget that players in other countries might be reading the piece of music for the first time, having not played it for 20 years, if yeah. ever, um, yeah. and then be just getting to grips with it slowly. And if you yeah. overload the information um, with your body language, I tend to find that that, <laughs> that backfires. So if, if I had a strategy, that's probably the only thing I would, I I would say. And I, I would add one other point to doing that. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever consciously done that, but I probably have. But it's one thing that I desperately want to know on day one of a two, three or four day process is with a new orchestra, how well do you play together on your own without my help at all? You know, how much of an internal clock is there in this orchestra? How much do you rely on listening to each other inwardly to find out who's conducting within the orchestra, not just the person with the white stick? You know, therefore, you know, by the end of day one, I've walked out thinking, well, actually, they've got really good inner ensemble. I can then now become much more of a of a, a balance engineer and, a, and an architect and phrasing, whatever else. Whereas other orchestras, you think the minute I take my hands off the, off the reins, it's going to start that, you know, you don't listen to, to each other quite so well as others. And that's very true. Every orchestra is so different. So I would add that to what you just said and say, you know, I don't, I, I think it's a very good, with a longer stretch of rehearsal, it's a very good thing to do. I would. The question that I've asked every conductor, um, and it's about score preparation. When you get to learn a new score, or even an old one that you've decided, you know, I need to go through again and, and re-study, do you go to a piano or do you sit at your desk with your inner ear? Uh, you Do you start with a big picture and go to small or do you start on page one and work to the end? And for us geeks, and I am one of them, scribbler. Are you a scribbler? Are you a red, blue, black, highlighter pens, or are you as little as possible? What do you write in your scores and how do you learn them, Jamie? Right. Where to start? <laughs> well, I'll start with the enormous taboo that there right. is in our world that we inhabit as conductors. I love listening to recordings. Don't we um, all? Uh, well, I, I, well, what, no, somebody earlier in an earlier podcast said, if somebody tells you they don't listen to recordings, they're lying. He didn't even say, I think they're lying. He said, they are lying. And, and, and you know, I think we all listen to recordings, really. It's just what you do with that information is the difference. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but what I tend to do, um, I mean, I do an awful lot of walking um, around where we live in the Kentish countryside. Um, and I will just, if I have something coming up in, I don't know, argument's sake, two months' time, I will just start, I will make a playlist, particularly if it's a big symphony that there are a lot of recordings of, I will make a playlist of 10 recordings of that piece. Yeah. And I will just listen through to them back to back, not necessarily all in one go, but one after another. Mm. Um, and I, I find that to be the best possible introduction to actually getting your head around a piece and the structure of a piece. And let's face it, how it goes. Yeah. Um, and well, I said there was a taboo about it. I, I was always under the impression that people, sort of, other conductors turn their noses up at the idea that you might actually just immerse yourself in, in different recordings. The critical thing is not to only listen to one recording. That's, no. that, is, that is absolutely, uh, absolutely vital. Um, and from there onwards, I just go deeper and deeper into the piece, really. I have to say, just as a side thought, this depends massively on whether I played it. In an orchestra. Yes. Oh, God, no, I agree it, with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, if it's a piece I played regularly as a trumpet player, um, then the amount of time I'll spend learning it will be 
I was going to say it would be less, but actually sometimes it takes more time for me to undo the trumpet player's perspective than than anything else. That's actually, very if true. it was totally fresh, then yeah. it might take a little bit less time. I don't know. Um, in answer to your question about what I write in the score, I I don't really use my colourful pencils anymore. I do occasionally if the score is so totally illegible that you actually need something to make things a little bit clearer in the score over the. Yeah. over the spidery handwriting that might be uh, contained in the music. Um, the only reason I don't use colours is not because I've got anything against them, but if I'm using colours, it tells me that I've not really learnt it as well as I think I ought to have learnt it. Um, so I kind of try to limit how much I write with my uh, 2B pencil, um, mm. just because I feel the need to know it better than the level I would it's, it's what I'm trying to say is if I marked it up in colors I don't think I would learn it as well um so mm. I've kind of set myself that standard of needing to know it well enough that I can just rely on a few pencil scribblings does that make some sort of sense oh it does I mean it's the opposite to me as you well know I'm a, I'm a big scribbler and I use colors I and everything and that's my way of learning it is by putting the hours in of putting the markings in and putting my thoughts down on the paper that's how I learn it as well as what you do, I mean, you know, I do listen to recordings, and uh, and actually, what you said, you know, I over twenty two years as a violinist in the CBSO, and all of the things previous to that in my life, I've played a, virtually everything there is to play. It doesn't mean I know everything about the score, though. I know the second violin part, but I I didn't don't necessarily know that the second oboe has that bit there because I never heard it because I was the other side yeah. of the platform or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes scores that you think you know really well because you use, you can almost play them from memory, you actually don't know very well at all because a lot of the stuff, especially if it was a difficult second violin part, you know, I was too busy trying to play the, play the second violin part to worry about, you know, what the basses had there. Um, well, I think I when, almost had the, had the reverse problem to that, Mike, because yeah, yeah. Having, having often played very, very loud, long, slow things over the top of frenetic string writing yeah, it's very yeah. very easy for me to lose but what's going on in front of me which yeah. is often sort of 70 or 80 percent of the detail yeah. so i could very very easily lose sight and sort of just conduct everything at the back of the orchestra totally forgetting what i needed to be paying attention to right in front of my nose i mean i haven't said it for a while about recordings but you know there is this film on the berlin philharmonic concert hall website called the Guardians of Unity. And there's a whole section on listening to recordings here. The, the interviewer is Simon Halsey, episode nine of this podcast. And you know, Parva Yevi says, if the greats of the past have recorded a piece that you're conducting, you'd be a fool not to listen to them. Uh, or, and or, very arrogant to think, why why would I not want to hear what Kleiber's version of this is like? Or Nappert's Bush's version of this is like? Or Carrion or Abado? You'd be arrogant and foolish not to listen to them. And, you know, if people like Simon Rattle listen to recordings and Pavlievi listen to recordings. Well, why can't we listen to recordings? The big thing is, as you said, is don't listen to one and also don't copy. You know, I mean, uh, I always know that I, when I know a piece very well, when I think well, there isn't a recording out there that goes exactly the way I want it to go, because yeah, I like that in that recording. I like that in that recording. But there isn't, nobody's actually done the version that's in my head yet. Um, and, yeah. you know, the, I think... The go on. The difficulty I stumble across is um, I'm a little bit of a Haydn geek. Um, and for a lot of the sort of middle Haydn symphonies that um, I really, really love to perform, there are not so many good recordings, yes. certainly at the sort of fresh tempo that I generally like to do them. Um, so actually, I'm limited to sort of one or two good recordings of these pieces. So at that point, actually, I have to just put those to bed completely and start from, from fresh. But having yeah. said that, the 
wonderful thing about Haydn is that you can you really can just hear it in your head based on what yeah. you're looking at in the score. It's it's not difficult. Usually at this point, some of you may be reaching for the little button that advances this episode on by 30 seconds, meaning that you may be missing interesting developments on my Patreon page. Over recent months, my Patreon page has expanded and is quickly becoming a great place for conductors and lovers of conducting to hang out. There's over 25 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers, as well as 23 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. I've written an article on score marking, a set of diaries from trips guest conducting, I've started a series of articles on the art of programming, and I'm about to start a new series on string playing for non-string playing conductors. And you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Jamie Phillips. Jamie, it is that time that it cannot be avoided. It's the 10 questions. And as ever, I start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Right. Can I start with the hate first? Of course you can. absolutely intolerant to polystyrene. Um, I, I, it genuinely brings me out in a cold sweat. Um, I, it makes me feel really nauseous. Uh, it gives me shivers. So I cannot even look at polystyrene because it makes me feel as bad as it. It's like nails down a blackboard to me. It's yeah. really, really ghastly. So please don't, don't approach me with polystyrene. <laughs> um, sound I love. Hmm. This is a very, very odd one. I'm sure you've had some odd answers to this question, but I love the sound of my dog lapping up water. I find it extremely comforting. It's the sound of like a horse drinking from a river. Um, it's the most inefficient, uh, inefficient drinking you can imagine, but I find it bizarrely really, really comforting just hearing him in the corner of the room, just lapping up, lapping up his water. Is that a strange answer? It's not a strange answer because immediately I'm, I, I, I'm not a dog owner or even, dare I say, dear listener, and don't turn off, but I'm not even really a dog lover because I, I've I've been allergic to dogs since I was nine years old, so I've never really had any time with dogs. But the point is that that sound of your dog lapping at his water bowl in the corner of your kitchen or wherever he lives is a sound that equates to being at home and comfortable, and, and that, um, that maybe that's what it is. You know, it, it could even be the sound of, a, of the grandfather clock in the hall, whatever, but something which just means you're home, you're safe, and you're in a happy place. And, mm. and if it's the sound of your dog doing that, well, then that's probably why you chose it. Um, just a guess. Uh, t- today's amateur psychology in the psychiatrist chair with Michael Seal and Jamie Phillips. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Number three, if you had 24 hours free or a day off when you were away guest conducting, what would you spend it doing? Uh, very good question. Again, I have recently developed, I was going to say a love of, and I'm probably going to call it an obsession. I'm going to correct myself immediately um, of running. So mm. I um, have made possibly a very, very foolish decision to London, run the London Marathon this October on the 2nd of October 2022 and so I am in full marathon training mode at the moment 
um, gosh, you all have remembered me as a, as a tubby teenager. So there's a little bit of a change in, uh, in psychology since, uh, since my teens. So I probably spend a little bit of my 24 hours running, um, but also just enjoying the gorgeous uh, countryside in Kent, where we live yeah. here, walking our dog. Yeah, well, you know, we're Facebook friends, and I've seen the benefits you are running in the, in the pictures of you <laughs> um, uh, doing various fun runs. And yeah, you're you're no longer the chubby teenager that I did know you as, whereas I am still the uh, the uh, ch chubby middle aged man that you knew all those back uh, years back then, because um, I don't do running. Um, number four, uh, a very easy question, possibly. Who would be your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? I thought about this for a long time, and if I have to give one conductor, I'm going to land on Nicholas Armancourt, um, yeah. because he was such a trailblazer in the middle of the 20th century for trying to reset and reapproach everyone's attitudes to music making from a t after a long stretch of time where things just seemed to be getting almost out of control in how lugubrious and lethargic things got, and actually to get back to the print in a way that now, at the beginning of the 21st century, we it's not even the beginning of the 21st century, but now in, in the current times, doesn't seem that radical or controversial. But I think we really owe an awful lot to him for sort of resetting the clock and getting us all to screw our heads on and think, what are we actually trying to do here? So mm. there's my answer. It's a very good answer. It's, it, it was one of my answers when I was asked that question for episode 50. Uh, and I agree. And it's not even going back to the print. It was also, you know, the way he rehearsed, the way he conducted. It wasn't necessarily MCC coaching manual at all, what he said in rehearsals or the gestures he gave. But he made orchestras play incredibly with incredible energy and excitement. Uh, and you couple that on top of the research and the work he did. And, you know, as you said, uh, in the middle of, of the 20th century, when seemingly classical music conducting was in, uh, you know, a pl the place it was, he just, you know, he, he lit a bomb under a lot of the repertoire and changed everybody's views on it. And so, yeah, perfect, perfect choice. Question five has been historically harder for some people to answer on this podcast. Um, and I don't really know why, but let's see whether you can answer it. Who would be your favourite current conductor or conductors? You, of course, can have more than one. It's going to have to be more than one, I'm afraid, because of it's course. almost impossible to answer it with a single answer. Um, it, it would really, really depend on what style of music I was listening to. So um, I have huge amounts of respect for Simon Rattle, for Vladimir Yurovsky. Uh, Pavel Yevi has been an absolute trailblazer with his uh, latest recordings of Beethoven symphonies and even Brahms symphonies now. Um, I think those will, that would be my trio of uh, conductors. And actually, I would probably add John Elliott Gardner's amazing recordings of Bach cantatas and so on. Um, so, yeah, it, it would just, again, depend on, depend on what I was listening to. Question six. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? So I might give a couple of answers here because there's one piece that I've got in mind that was probably technically the most difficult thing I've ever done but not necessarily the most overall difficult thing, if that makes sense. I did makes, a yeah, performance last year of um, a concerto for accordion and string quartet by Hans Abrahamson right. uh, with the wonderful contemporary music group in Manchester called Saffa. Um, and it was for sure technically the most difficult thing I've ever done, not to mention the fact that the, the meters were all over the place, sort of 11-16s and 7-16s and what have you. But the metronome markings, they were basically 
written out a cellarandi all through the piece. Um, in other words, you basically he would do a, a sort of metric modulation to go up through the different different metronome markings to the point, Mike, that the metronome uh, indications were to two decimal places. Now, um, <laughs> I thought that might, might, be, might make you oh, chuckle. Um, yeah. And it was really incredible because what he sort of did was to write things in, in I don't know, in, in crotchets and then go into dotted quaver beats and then use dotted quaver beats to become the new crotchets, so on and so forth. So it was done, sort of done mathematically. Um, so from a technical point of view, that was incredibly difficult. Um, and I actually, <laughs> I, I took an older trick from the great late uh, Ollie Nusson. Um, and having put so much time into the uh, rehearsing of that, we played it twice in the concert, which is something he always right. used to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. He said, it's a very nice piece, That let's play it again. Um, so, that, yeah. so that's <laughs> definitely the most technically difficult thing I've done. But I have to say my overall answer to that's a bit different. And I'm going to put the Prelude to Parsifal on there because I find musically speaking and from just a general point of view things with extremely expansive slow beats and I've realized I'm now talking extremely slow and expansive. Uh, 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 uh. I find those to be the most difficult things just in terms of having the confidence just to can really really control your beat over such as such a slow tempo and I did it in um with the Royal Danish Orchestra in Copenhagen live on Danish television with the Queen of Denmark sat about 20 feet over my left shoulder. And um, that was probably the most terrifying experience of my musical life, just because there's no hiding space in something no. like that. It's not like giving the upbeat to Roman Carnival Overture and just getting on with it. It's, yeah. it, 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 yeah, that, that, um, yeah, I find that very hard. They are, you know, long, slow, expansive pieces like that. I find also find very, very difficult. Um, you know, I mean, if pinned down, somebody said to me, you know, what, which piece do you conduct probably very regularly that you find incredibly difficult? I'll give the answer, Nimrod from the Enigma Variations, because, you know, what, what you do between those beats, should you do anything between those beats? Um, you know, I'm not talking about the Bernstein tempo of crotch equals 17. I'm talking about somewhere between Bolt at 42 beats per minute and 60 is what Elgo wanted. It's still tricky. And to keep the flow and the line and the pacing, yeah, it's hard. It's really, really, really hard. You know, I'd, I'd rather have <laughs> metronome marks to two decimal points. Um, it sounds like he was trying to, you know, in the, in the old days, somebody would have written dotted quaver equals crotchet and then crotchet equals triple crotchet or whatever. And he did that as well. It. Right, okay. But <laughs> yeah, um, uh, well, I think I'd rather have the decimal places than the long, slow music sometimes. Yeah, I remember 91.75 beats per minute. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Uh, so I'm going to refer the right honorable gentleman to the previous answer, um, <laughs> and that is going to be my uh, running trainers. Um, right. And actually, I have honestly found that my general well-being when I'm away working, particularly somewhere far away from home, where you don't necessarily know anybody in the city apart from the, play the players you're working with, um, I actually find just to arrive there and go for a half an hour or 40 minute jog when I get there is really really um yeah it, it makes a huge difference to, to my well-being and actually yeah. you get to see a lot of a city very very fast when you're moving quickly through it um yeah. so i really really enjoy that well let's go back to something you said earlier about going to la and really not knowing anybody there what a great way of getting into that 
you know that way of thinking because as a, as guest conductors we do go to places i do a similar thing i uh, i will normally you know unpack my case in the hotel and if it's not too late at night i'll go for a half an hour walk just walk around the around the area or walk to the concert hall and back or whatever just see where we are what's going on how the city feels especially if it's daytime or whatever but even a city i i know and love it you know, i bet recently in cologne for a week you know i unpack my suitcase go and have a walk down by the river what's going on watch your boats go by and uh yeah you, when you're on your own it's it's a great way of doing seeing what's going on what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor i might give a two-part answer here if that's all right um, i've got right. one trivial thing and one slightly more serious thing i'll start with the trivial thing um the feeling of walking into a restaurant and saying table for one arm please and they go are you on your own and you go unless you're joining me table for yeah. one please yeah. um yeah. and it is the most well one of the most soul destroying things um about uh, sort of the life of a lone musician traveler is asking for a table for one and actually uh, in all seriousness is one of the reasons that i have generally started booking airbnbs in the places that i work because it means that you can just cook for yourself and you don't have to sort of sit there reading a book, feeling awkward for half an hour whilst you wait for someone to serve you an uh, expensive dinner. So, yeah, I, th that's, my, uh, that's my trivial answer. Um, the thing I find possibly most tricky about conducting, and I'm sure this is something I share with many of my colleagues, is a sort of feeling of, I wouldn't describe it as hostility, but a, a kind of presumption that when you walk out onto the podium, that someone is going to try and catch you out at some point in the next three hours. Mm. Um, and that's something I've worked a lot on over the last sort of five or six years to try and find ways through that and, to, and for it to become less of an issue. And I would actually say it is much less of an issue for me now than certainly when I was really starting out. Um, but I think the, the, the feeling that you have to prove something within about the first 30 seconds of a rehearsal um, I, I get why it is, and you need to make an, a really, really good impression very, very fast. Um, but I think that sort of, uh, what would you call it, disparity between between the, the conductor and the players. I'd really, uh, someday I hope that we can get to the point where every, or at least most orchestras you stand in front, people want you to succeed at all times. And I yeah. would say we're up to about 60% at the moment. Yeah, when they're not, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what you're, you, I know exactly how you feel and what you're, what you're saying. Um, when I first started out, you know, there wasn't anything in the string playing world that was going to trip me up. What was going to trip me up was transposition of, you know, horns, trumpets, um, and so I, if it was in a, a trumpet key that I didn't understand, I would often write the notes in over the top, or you know, write the trans transposition in my score. So I knew I could, always had to go down a minor third or up a major sixth or whatever, because I wondered whether people were going to try and trip me up. And, and whilst I feel personally this happens less now, and actually, and if they did try and trip me up, I think I've probably got a couple of pithy and witty answers to to, to, to stop that happening. Yeah, I think there are still some places I go where, you know, they'd quite like to see you fall flat on your face and make an idiot of yourself and give the wrong answer. Uh, and going back to point one, I don't think it's trivial at all because I've been there so many times. In fact, I'll tell you what I've done, and I'm being honest, dear listener, and dear Jamie, 
I've walked to restaurants because I've seen brilliant reviews on TripAdvisor or somewhere local saying, eat in this restaurant. I've looked in the window. It's been heaving with people. And I thought, oh, I haven't got the guts to go in there on my own uh, and ask for a table for one and have half the restaurant look, turn around and look at you and go, oh, look at all oh, those Billy Nomates eating all his own. For sure. Um, for sure. And, and actually yeah. talking to some conductor friends of mine who, uh, a good colleague and friend, Andrew Gourlay, who was music director in Cad- um, in uh, Valladolid, sorry, yeah. in, um, in, in Spain, particularly where eating out is such a huge part of the culture um and you go into a, a tapas restaurant where the seemingly the minimum table size is eight and you're there on your own yeah, um, yeah. and th- that's a big big struggle i think yeah. in some p- places where it's a bit more geared up for business travelers it seems okay i will never forget the hotel in luxembourg which had an entire wall of tables for one <laughs> well that's ideal <laughs> yeah conductor's room for eating in um where are we? Number nine. Now, I wonder whether I know what the answer to this is going to be, but just because of the conversation we had before I press record. Number nine is what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I'd always dreamt of being a pilot. That was my that was my big dream whilst I was growing up. Um, I don't know whether it was because I tried to trick the careers match software at school into, <laughs> into generating the answer pilot where it asked me all the questions about whether I was good under pressure or not. And of course I said, yes, absolutely suits yeah. me perfectly. I'm terrible under pressure. Um, huh. And it, uh, that was one thing. I think I've probably parked that for now. Yeah. Um, although having said that, my, uh, my brother is a um, the very, very final stages of his, um, of his pilot training despite a slight pause due to the pandemic, will hopefully be flying for British Airways in within a few months. So fingers crossed for that, please, everybody. Um, that the, the thing I actually would fancy doing if, if my conducting career came to an abrupt end would be um, being an air traffic controller, very related yeah. profession. Again, the calmness under pressure, I think, would be a bit of a prerequisite. And also my uh, pilot brother has threatened that he would... <laughs> <laughs> and his wings up the second I became responsible for directing air traffic. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I remember your brother being a very fine oboist before he went into uh, wanting to become a pilot. Is that correct? He was an oboist. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, secondly, why am I not surprised that you were well, a wanted to be a pilot, but that now have chosen the answer air traffic controller? Because, dear listener, I know uh, Jamie's father, Mark, very well, and I know that. It, that Never have I met anybody quite as obsessed with civil aviation and all of its, um, you know, timetables, layouts of seats on planes. Um, yeah, I have a, a, a saying that I, I like to use, which is every man has an anorak. He just chooses when and where to wear it, which means basically we, we all have a hobby that we like to talk about and we all find each other. I used to find all of the watch collectors and I know the composer of the music for this podcast, Ben Dawson, is also as obsessed with civil aviation as Mark is your dad. And I've seen the two of them at airports sitting there, chuntering away to each other, looking out of the window at planes. And so, yeah, it, uh, why well, am I not you, surprised? You, you <laughs> say every, every, everyone's got an anorak they choose where to wear it, so my dad will be permanently waterproof. I can tell you that yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the final question. Number 10. Finally, Jamie, if the world were to end tonight... And let's hope it doesn't. What would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, it's really hard to come up with one good answer to this because I like a lot of food from a lot of different cuisines. Well, come I, up with a it, come up with yeah. a, a buffet, a world buffet of your favourite things. <laughs> no, no, I, I think the most important thing for me, in all honesty, would be to have a good 
company whilst I'm eating this food. I'm actually, if I'm in, if I'm imagining said scenario, I'm much more interested in the people that I'm talking to over the dinner table and having good wine. I think I would probably actually be having a barbecue in the garden with dear friends and family. I think that would be the answer. What a great answer. I don't think we've had a barbecue as an answer. That's a brilliant answer. As somebody who loves doing that. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, I'm really, really pleased about that. You've sort of knocked me back a bit there. Um, (laughs) But it's sunny outside. I might have to get the barbecue fired up. Um, Oh, well, really, really, really good answer. And a really, really, really good interview it's been. It's been great to catch up and chat. Um, As I said, it's been a long time but we've known each other a very long time. And uh, I thank you for coming on and I hope to see you very soon. It's a great pleasure, Mike. All the best. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a French conductor who has had a truly international career. Over the last 25 years or so, he has held title positions in France, Belgium, Germany, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom and the United States of America. But until then, bye-bye.